Good morning again. If you would, please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4. I'll be reading Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts 4, 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, intentional Word to our souls. Father, thank You. We thank You for what You have chosen to have in the New Testament. We thank you for the selectivity and the guidance of your Spirit upon Luke to give us what you want us to have. And so I pray that you help me teach, unfold, help us see, go deep with you in this passage this morning to the glory of of your Son's name unto the courage of us, your church, to believe and to speak the word of truth. Amen. I remember sitting in a large auditorium called the Institute Building back in 1986 at Christ for the Nations Institute. And a student stood up to ask the instructor, who happens to be my wife's uncle, and asked, Dr. Thompson, what would it take for the church to have true revival in our country? And I leaned forward in my seat just anticipating some profound, long discourse on the strategy that we, the church, ought to employ in order to bring us back to biblical fidelity, faithfulness to Christ, and the Scripture, and to shun worldliness. 
And as Carol Thompson was prone to do, he slow looked up at the ceiling for a few long seconds. And then out of his mouth came a one-word answer. Persecution. That's our only hope. Throughout church history, persecution has always made the church stronger. It tends to burn out the impurities of the church. It drives away the the nominal Christians, the, the worldly church attenders, and causes a clearer separation between Jesus' people and the world. And as we see in our passage, it drives the church to pray. Intentional, serious prayer. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, we should pray, God, bring persecution, particularly because our passage itself suggests we don't need to do that. We can just leave that into the sovereign hands of God. He's been very good about it throughout the centuries. But in our day here in America, religious freedom is eroding quickly. More and more, those who are free to kick and ridicule and say all kinds of nasty things about are those like us who are biblical, evangelical Christians. Bakers and photographers and Florists are having their businesses destroyed in courtrooms because they hold to biblical values concerning human sexuality. And it's not inconceivable coming right in front of us in this country that Christians who endeavor to love their children, to train their children, to discipline their children and to teach their children according to biblical principles could have the state, the government, come and take them away. It's true we have not experienced in our country persecution to the point of shedding of blood or of imprisonment as so many fellow Christians throughout the centuries have, and many are this very moment across this world. But our state of California, our country, and our culture are becoming more and more directly anti-biblical values. So we better have a theology of persecution in order to stand in the day of trial. Because if you don't, not just persecution, but just we all have trials. And many Christians, when trials come, get angry with God. When that tragedy comes, when that evil hits their household, they turn because they have an unbiblical view of God's sovereignty 
over evil. So they grow bitter when persecution or just personal trials come. Our passage this morning, and particularly most of it, is an early church prayer. It teaches us to draw near to God first by confessing and knowing who God is according to Scripture. To go to Him and say to Him who He is and that He is in absolute control of all things, including persecution and our own individual trials in life. Secondly, in this passage, it teaches us in our prayers to assess our own weaknesses honestly so we know what to pray about. To assess our own weaknesses so that our sin does not cause others to see they profess Christ, but they live as if He isn't alive. We need to assess our weakness that without God's help, we will fold in fear when it comes time to stand and to confess the truth in whatever situations of life we would find ourselves. And then that leads to the third part of this prayer. Then we pray, God, give us what we need to stand, to be bold, and to speak by the Holy Spirit. So, if you're there, let's go back to verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And then they prayed. Their first response to persecution was not complaining, but it was praying they were not praying, God, please stop the persecution. Wasn't their prayer. But they prayed, God, work in us boldness and courage to speak and to stand for the truth in the midst of persecution. So remember the context. Peter and John had been arrested and put in jail, and then the next day brought before the court, the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, and then they were threatened by the court to not teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Then they released them. And then we see they went back to a group. We don't know if it's all 5,000 here. It could have been 100. could have been 50. could have been 200. But they go back to a group of fellow Christians and they just unpack all that just happened in the court about these threats. And their response was, let's pray. Let's affirm God's sovereignty over this situation and ask for a, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit so that we will remain bold 
and courageous to speak the gospel in the face of threat, imprisonment, beatings. We will see they will be beaten by the same court pretty soon. Peter and John told this group of believers about the threats that we saw last week back in verse 18 and 21. So they, the Sanhedrin, called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. And that's why now they pray in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants boldness to continue to speak. So the context of their praying this prayer, it was intimidating, scary threats to their well-being if they continued to preach in the name of Jesus. This is what caused them to be so urgent in prayer. See, they didn't assume as Peter would have months earlier. <laughs> I'm strong enough. I'll never deny you, Lord Jesus. They didn't assume they had within themselves the stuff to be brave, to be bold in upholding the name of Jesus. Therefore, they knew they were desperate for God the Holy Spirit to fill them again and again for effective witnessing. They knew that they could shrink back in fear at any moment. I've got a wife to take care of and i got kids to raise. This is too risky. So they prayed. Threats and intimidation against Christians in our country is rising. Just over the last two weeks, the story broke about a young sister in the Lord, Isabella Chow. She's a junior at the University of California at Berkeley, and she was elected to the Student Senate. And she is right now facing a huge outcry for her to resign her Senate seat. Why? It's simple. Because she holds to traditional Christian views on gender and human sexuality. What happened in the Senate? I think there's 13 or 14 or so on the, in the Senate. And they drew up a resolution to vote on which was condemning the recent changes to Title IX. Obama changed them in his administration. They're being turned back to basically say this. Title IX, gender will be defined as according to your biological, physical sex. 
And they said, this is horrible. So we draw up a resolution to condemn that change. And they all voted yes, except for Isabella. She didn't vote, she just refrained from voting. She couldn't vote as a faithful Christian on that, yes, because she believes according to science and according to biology and according to Scripture that there are only two sexes, male and female. And they're defined biologically. And that stance was enough to get her own campus political party to disown her. And then she was absolutely blasted in the campus newspaper and called homophobic and transphobic. And then, she says, okay, i got to explain it to these people. She wrote an op-ed explaining her views as a Christian and submitted it to the newspaper on campus, and the campus newspaper refused to publish her explanation of her views. This is what they said to her and why they rejected it. Quote, op-eds that are deemed libelist, racist, sexist, homophobic, or highly offensive in any other manner will not be printed. And the statement of the Jewish council reads very similarly to that statement of that campus newspaper. This is how the statement goes from the Sanhedrin. Op-eds and public speaking that we deem to be dangerous to our positions and highly inflammatory because they differ from what we believe are to be punished by the authority of the Sanhedrin. If the apostles and the other early Christians who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, if they needed to prayerfully seek fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit in order that they will have the courage to stand boldly and maintain their convictions, then how much more do we? Now, let's continue on and notice something about the way they prayed. Start with verse 24. Remember, they reported what just happened, and then Luke tells us, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. It's the word Christ. And they go on, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I stop there. They're not done with the prayer yet. But to bring to your attention that in these first five verses of the prayer, they still have not asked God to do anything. But instead, all they have done so far, and it's the bulk of the prayer, is to tell God who He is. And it's not because God has Alzheimer's disease. It's because they and we Christians need to know who He is and confess before Him in our prayers who He is. To be clear, this is who you are that we are praying to. You, therefore, are the one who can and will answer our prayers. That's what they do. And so first, the way they do it is this. They reflect several Old Testament texts about God as the creator of the universe who just spoke it all into existence. Everything. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, even this Sanhedrin, you, God, own it all, and you can provide for us whatever we need to do your work. He is the sovereign Lord, even over the high priests, the priestly family, the Sadducees, and the elders who threaten us. That's what they're doing. Then, secondly, they declare very clearly that God, you are ruler of all. God, you are in control of everything, even the evil deeds of people. They say this by quoting Psalm 2. Verses 1 to 2. And then they show how the psalm is fulfilled in the evil that was done against Jesus. Verse 25, so they, they're quoting, they're still praying. You're the one who said through David, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against Yahweh and against His anointed or Christ. And so clearly what they're going to do, the Gentiles in that psalm who raged and plotted, it corresponds to the Gentiles represented by Pontius Pilate, the Roman government, the peoples who plotted in vain in Psalm 2, refers to Israel and her leaders who together conspired to put the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus, to death. And here's their point as they pray. But God, they absolutely unwittingly were doing Your will. 
even though they are accountable and they had evil, sinful motives and purposes, in the long run, your glorious will was coming to pass in the death of your Son. That's why they go on then. After they quote Psalm 2, 1-2, they unfold it. They explain it to God in their prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Here's who was gathered together. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, in order that they would do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples scheme in vain? Well, the answer is, it's all in vain because their rage came to nothing. And their plotting against Jesus is empty because God rules even over the sinful works of men and causes them to backfire on them. God raised Jesus from the dead. And as Peter just said right to the faces of the Sanhedrin, this is fulfilling what was prophesied. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected. But God has raised him. God has made him the very main stone upon which he is building his kingdom, his house. And they prayed. They were gathered together in order to do Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These Christians saw and they believed that the evil planning and carrying out of the execution of Jesus for, for their own wicked purposes was in fact God's hand in sovereign control, carrying out His predetermined plan from before the foundation of the world. That's the God that they are praying to. And that's what engenders within them confidence. This makes a huge practical difference in their Christian lives. Persecution is on the rise. It is scary. If they believed, if so many Christians today teach that, that evil sin that happens within humanity occurs outside of God's sovereign will, then there would be no good cause for comfort. There would be great cause for fear. All they could say and all we could say is it's too bad. Well, I guess our Father in heaven, he tried, but he let another one 
slip by. But God means well. It's just that His hands are tied. Because He decided to tie them. So whatever is coming next, God cannot stop it. And worse, nor does He will it for ultimate, eternal good because He has nothing to do with it. He has nothing to do with the unpredictability of our lives. What kind of comfort would that be? But along with the apostles and the early church, there's great comfort in knowing this about our God. Our God sovereignly ordains all that happens. And He orders it all according to His wise, eternal purpose. So when trials come, when persecution rises and we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallow your name. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, keep us from sinning. Like playing the coward to threats against us for failing to hold and to speak the truth. That's what they actually go on to ask from God. After five verses of theology about God, Sovereign Lord, this is who You are. They go on, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant or give to us, grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness while You stretch out Your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Your holy servant, Jesus. So they pray. Here's their first petition. Lord, Notice what's happening. Look upon their threats. What's he mean? It's, I think it's just clear. He means, Lord, they're threatening us to not speak of your son's name anymore. Lord, your Son's name is at stake, so we plead with You to act for the glory of Your Son. Take notice, Lord, of their threats and give to us what we need so that we will continue to be vessels for the glory of Your Son's name in the midst of the threats. That's what they're saying. Grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness while You stretch out Your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name 
of your holy servant, Jesus. So they asked three things. First, that God would give them courage to go on speaking God's word, the truth, the gospel. Secondly, that God would act, that He would stretch out His hand and do more physical, miraculous healings like He just did with the man at the gate. And third, that He would cause signs and wonders to be witnessed because they're performed in the name of Jesus. Essentially saying, God, let us go on speaking and vindicate Your name, vindicate our preaching, vindicate our testimony of the resurrection of Jesus as Your eyewitnesses through healings and signs and wonders. Here's their prayer. It's not by accident it's here. Nothing is. This passage, it's in the New Testament, not merely as, no, look at that historical thing, like a, a historical artifact that you just kind of glance at like it was King Tut's exhibit or something. It's there in order to be instructive. It shows how we ought always be seeking the power of God's Spirit in the midst of our trials of our everyday lives, in the midst of greater or greater cultural or governmental persecutions that Christians go through, we should pray specifically for boldness to proclaim His name, to proclaim His ways, to proclaim the truth that is getting attacked from whichever angle in society like our society today. To do that so that we don't play the coward in our sinful neglect of the truth for the sake of worldly safety. We should pray for God also to stretch out His hand and to heal and to perform signs, wonders, miracles. We want the power of God, but don't pull it apart from this very central biblical truth and what this is all about. Speaking truth, theology, the gospel. As Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that's the goal in having courage to speak as God's servants or vessels as they put it because it is through his word where God will act all the more that's the way to pray and that prayer led to verse 31 and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I think it means like an earthquake. Whether it's only that, I don't, it's physical. It was 
shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Result? They continued to speak the Word of God with all boldness. As they, we here are constantly in need of fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit. Peter was there on the day of Pentecost. John was there. Numbers of these others most likely were there. Notice what Luke gives us here and how it parallels what happened on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, in that early morning, they were gathered together praying. Here, they are praying. On Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, including Peter and John. On this day, maybe a couple months down the road, they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Here in this passage, God shakes this physical manifestation. He shakes the building to demonstrate His power. Day of Pentecost, that whole room of 120, it was filled with a rushing, mighty sound. Here, they boldly speak the Word of God. Pentecost, they all spoke in unknown tongues the praises and the great things of God. Peter, John, the other apostles, the early Christians, could not make it. I got filled with the Holy Spirit back then. They were in constant need of prayer and petition. God, act and fill us. And so as we wake up each day to battle afresh our own fears and our own sinfulness, this is what this passage teaches us. First, know who God is. Fill your heart, fill your mind with biblical theology. In other words, Bible passages, verses that proclaim who He is so that in your prayer you spend time telling God who he is. He works mightily in that process in the hearts of His people. Speak it. Let me just, you know, one thing that, that I do for months now is that, that I've taped 14 or 15 Bible passages at the front of my Bible, particularly for Sunday morning. Particularly that I be filled with the Spirit, that I can enter 
your throne room, God, that, that because if I'm left to myself and what I fight with the frailty of my mind for the few hours before service, well, I, I keep going back to prayer. Oh, God, help me. Much of it is, again, praying back to who He is and what He's promised. Let's give you a few examples of what I do. Like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, Joe, for I am your God. F Father, you're my God. To whatever extent I feel undone now, I really do. Help me. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm banking on that, Father. Or Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts, who acts on behalf of those who wait from. Oh, Father, as I sit in my car now, I'm waiting. I'm waiting that when it's time for me to get up and preach, you will act. Oh, act. You're the God who acts. There is no other God like you. Or Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Oh, Father, the Apostle Paul has declared your word that you work. Oh, I need you mightily to work. If you don't work in me, the, the, my sin, my hardness, my mind flying all over to irrelevant places will overtake me. Work. Or oh, I love this one. Psalm 25, 8-9. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners like you, Joe, in the way. I, mean, I'm a, I know I'm a sinner. Am I even worthy to preach Your Word? It's what it is to be a Christian. Instruct me what to say and what to speak. A sinner. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. Or one more. Maybe Peter and John very much had these words in their mind as they sat there in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Oh, Father, you are the rewarder for boldness. Don't let me cower even to your saints, even as a local church pastor. Don't let me cower and be afraid to say what seems to me is a finite being who could be wrong, but what seems to me to be so clear, let me say your word. Pray first by telling God who He is 
what he said about himself. And then secondly, you assess your own shortcomings as they did. You must, Father, grant to us boldness to speak in the face of threats or we may flee. Or you say the same prayer in your everyday lives. Grant me the power, Father, to represent you in front of my children day in and day out as I parent them and as I school them. Grant me the power to be a godly husband and obey your injunction to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I can't do it without the power of your Spirit. Or grant me to be a godly wife today. Oh, Father, pour it out. Upon me, or grant to me the courage to speak and to live the truth of the gospel on my campus, in my classrooms, at my workplace, among my colleagues, with and among my non Christian family members and non Christian friends. Oh, Father, don't let me cower to peer pressure and become worldly amongst them, but let me shine as a light. And thus, we are to yearn to have the result. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God with boldness. Let us go on yearning, yearning to be filled with the Holy Spirit day after day in all circumstances to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Father, in every differing circumstance and singleness and marriage and child rearing and school and workplace, amongst family members, amongst the tension within our culture of what is truth, fill us, fill us with all resolve to hold to the old rugged cross, to hold to the truth of your Son who is the only way to you. He is the only remedy from eternal damnation. Oh, let us stand in truth that there is such a thing as right and wrong, as male and female, of sinful sex and God-glorifying sex. Oh, let us be those who stand boldly. Grant to us this, 
Holy Father, to the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>